Faye, in this era of rapidly changing practice with respect to COVID, I am so happy that I have a continued subscription to the OBG project. Definitely. I have really appreciated my OBG First subscription as well because I get a lot of my information actually from my phone. And so when they email me and I'm able to rapidly click on those articles and read them before they go away, that really allows me to continue to stay up to date on everything that's going on. And it's even beyond just COVID, right? They send us summaries of the latest and greatest and randomized trials for obstetrics, gynecology, and primary care, as well as other interesting articles that, hey, that just may be relevant to my practice or just something fun to know. So if you're a fourth-year resident like Nick and I, you can get one year of subscription to OBG First absolutely free. And we have actually gone beyond our first year, and I have continued to subscribe to uh, the OBG Project and OBG First just because I think that it is so helpful for my current practice and for my learning. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Kriags over, over Coffee. Today, we're going to tackle a topic that I really enjoyed putting together. Um, we're going to talk about operative vaginal birth. So for uh, those of you out there, again, that like to have your reading, um, go ahead and look at the newest practice bulletin, Practice Bulletin 219, Operative Vaginal Birth, that just came out in... April of this year. All right, Nick, so what are our learning objectives for today? So to start sort of a not learning objective, um, this obviously can't be a how-to on operative vaginal birth because some of this is really experiential requiring residency and fellowship, but we will delve into what operative vaginal deliveries are and when to use them. We'll talk about the different types of forceps deliveries describing high, mid, low, and outlet deliveries and the qualifications for those. We'll also talk about the risks and benefits of operative vaginal delivery and how to counsel patients. And then finally, we'll do kind of a comparison of forceps and vacuum deliveries. So Faye, I'll sort of just ask it out loud here, but it's your passion. What is an operative vaginal birth? Yes. An operative vaginal birth is when an obstetrician or some other trained birthing provider uses a device such as a vacuum extractor or forceps during the second stage of labor to achieve or expedite a vaginal birth for either maternal or fetal indications. So the two that we have at our institution, and I'm assuming that other people have at their institutions, are going to be the forceps and the vacuum extractor. So we'll start by talking about the forceps a little bit, and I'm sorry I'm taking this from you, Nick, because I really love forceps. Um, I do too, just to throw it out there. <laughs> and just as a qualification, we're not putting them on everybody, but if we need to perform an operative vaginal birth, my preference usually is for forceps. So what they are are metal devices with two blades that are placed around the head of the fetus to assist in birth. The forceps themselves, and we'll have a picture of this on our website, consists of the components of the blade, the shank, the lock or articulating portion, and the handle. The blades, which are the portions that go around the head of the fetus, or the neonate, um, have a toe, which is the front of the blade, and a heel, which is the back part of the blade that is closest towards the provider, as well as a pelvic curve and a cephalic curve. 
just because I like medical history, I'm going to include that the forceps were first developed by the Chamberlain family of surgeons in France, and they think this was probably around 1634, though historians aren't exactly sure because the Chamberlain family kept them secret for about 150 years. The surprising thing when I looked at these forceps is that they look very much like today's forceps in terms of the blades. The shanks and, you know, the handle may look a little different, but overall they largely haven't changed. And this makes sense because the Simpson forceps that we currently use, you know, the ones with the split shanks, for example, were created in 1848, and the Elliott forceps with the overlapping shanks was created in 1860. And we can spend a lot of time talking about the different types of forceps, depending on, you know, if they're fenestrated or not fenestrated or pseudo-fenestrated blades, blah, 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 but we won't. Just know that most of them are derivatives of these Simpson and Elliott forceps. All right. Um, so, Nick, those are forceps. Talk to me about vacuum extractors. Yeah. So, vacuums are another method to assist in the second stage of birth. And the way that these look are kind of like a suction cup. Um, the suction cup goes on the head of the baby approximately two to three centimeters anterior to the posterior fontanelle, which is known as the flexion point. This placing it at the flexion point helps guide the head through the birth canal, fix asyncletism, um, do what you need it to do in order to facilitate delivery. Again, just for some history on the side of vacuums, the first vacuum extractor was developed by James Young Simpson in 1849, and just for those of you who are historian type of buffs, this is the same guy that pioneered the use of chloroform in childbirth. But vacuum extractors didn't really catch on until a Swedish doc named Taj Malmstromo, for a name as I've butchered there, developed the Von Tuz device or the Malmstrom extractor in the 1950s. All right, so now that we've gotten our history fix on Faye and sort of set the stage, when should we consider doing these? So there are really three reasons for you to do an operative vaginal birth. So they are if there is a prolonged second stage of labor, also for suspicion of immediate or potential fetal compromise, and last of all, to shorten the second stage of labor for maternal benefit. So either because there is maternal exhaustion or maybe there is uh, maternal cardiac issues that may make it difficult for the mom to Valsalva for an extended period of time. Um, Nick, what about the prerequisites for an operative vaginal birth? Because, you know, not everybody is a candidate for an operative vaginal birth. For the number of times that I've had to recite these out in front of an attending, say, I should know them by heart. But I'm going to read them from our notes here. And this is for everybody listening, commit them to memory. Um, because if you're not a chief resident yet, you'll be asked about them when you are a chief resident. So first, the cervix needs to be fully dilated and membranes need to be ruptured. Okay. Probably have to deal with that just to get the baby down low enough to consider an operative vaginal birth. The fetal head also needs to be engaged. The position of the fetal head needs to be known, and this can be done either by exam or by ultrasounds. And this isn't just cephalic. This means left occiput anterior or exactly which way the baby's head is facing. EFW needs to be performed or an estimated fetal weight needs to be assessed. And we also need to assess the pelvis for adequacy for vaginal birth. We don't want to pull from an operative vaginal delivery directly into a shoulder dystocia um, because that won't help us at all with respect, particularly for fetal compromise. Need to assess for adequate anesthesia, in particular for the case of forceps. The maternal bladder should be emptied before attempting a pull. You need to obtain informed consent from your patient after discussing risks and benefits of the procedure, um, which we'll talk about here momentarily. 
Next, you need to be willing to abandon a trial of operative vaginal delivery and have backup in place, meaning cesarean delivery, in case you're not able to deliver operatively. The last thing that you may be asked about is whether episiotomy should be performed at the same time. There is not a recommendation to perform prophylactic episiotomy anymore, um, but if you need to perform episiotomy for an indication, there is a recent trial called the ANODE trial, ANODE. It's reasonable to give prophylactic antibiotics in that instance, as well as if there is a third or fourth degree vaginal laceration. All right, Faye, so those are the prerequisites. Let's now talk about the criteria to do a forceps delivery. So I know in the beginning we talked about high, mid, low, and outlet forceps. So in obstetrics nowadays, we do not perform high forceps anymore, and that's when the fetal head is not engaged. Uh, it's not within the maternal pelvis. We're just going to write that one off and not talk about it since we don't do them anymore. Mid forceps are when the station of the fetal head is above plus two, but the head is engaged. Um, I've actually never seen mid-forceps, Nick. Um, I don't think we have a lot of providers in our institution that does them anymore, but the practice bulletin does say that mid-forceps are safe provided that you have someone who is able to do them and experienced in performing them. Low forceps, which is uh, much more consistent with what I've seen and what I've performed myself, is when the leading point of the fetal skull is at plus two station or more, and but not necessarily on the pelvic floor. Without rotation, this would be a rotation of 45 degrees or less. So you could think like ROA, ROP, LOA, LOP, or direct OA or OP. With rotation, that means that you need to rotate the head greater than 45 degrees. Again, we don't really do rotational forceps at our institution, but the practice bulletin again says that uh, rotational forceps are fine as long as you have someone who is able to perform them and experienced in that. Finally, we have outlet forceps. So outlet forceps is defined as when the fetal scalp is visible at the introitus without separating the labia, the fetal skull has reached the pelvic floor, or the fetal head is at or on the perineum. And the sagittal suture is in an AP diameter, so basically OA or OP, or you're at ROA, ROP, LOA, or LOP, and rotation does not exceed 45 degrees. All right, Nick, so let's say you have this patient and you think that she would be a good candidate for forceps um, or a vacuum delivery, but you have to talk to her about it. So how would you counsel the patient about the risks and benefits of forceps or vacuum? Absolutely. So part of the process is selection, right? So again, talking through and thinking about those things that we already have gone through as the criteria, um, because you don't want to offer vaginal delivery if there's reason to think that it wouldn't be successful or it's not worth offering. Um, but if you are at a point where you can offer operative vaginal birth, you want to break it down into benefits and risks. So from a benefits side, Really, it's the most expeditious way to deliver the baby, more than likely. Again, depending on the indication, you're avoiding a cesarean section, um, which can have a number of important benefits for both mom and baby. Breaking complications down is a little bit more extensive. We'll talk about both maternal complications as well as fetal or newborn complications. On mom's side, there's a higher risk of obstetric anal sphincter injuries, um, about 10 to 20%, though it may be difficult to separate this out from other risks that are associated with operative vaginal birth, like the prolonged second stage, fetal size, the practice of cutting episiotomies, etc. There was a study that controlled 
or attempted to control for all of these other clinical factors. And forceps in that study was associated with a six-fold increase in third and fourth degree tears and vacuum extraction associated with a two-fold increase in third and fourth degree vaginal tears. Additional studies, though, have not shown a significant difference in fecal or flatal incontinence through a year postpartum. So again, the clinical relevance of that, I think, still remains to be seen, but certainly there is a risk of a higher degree vaginal tear. On the newborn side, complications are very low in general. Intracranial hemorrhage is a significant risk that is present in about 1 in 650 to 850 operative vaginal births overall, and neurologic complications present in 1 in 220 to 385 operative vaginal births. For vacuum extractions, these injuries usually occur due to traction on the fetal scalp, so this can result in lacerations or more significant bleeding such as a cephalohematoma or subgaleal or intracranial hemorrhages. For forceps, the risk is more, again, with placement of the blade onto the baby's head um, that can result in facial lacerations, facial nerve palsy if it goes over the course of the seventh cranial nerve, corneal abrasion or external ocular trauma, and then again, for the more rare complications, skull fracture and intracranial hemorrhage. Rates of intracranial hemorrhage are similar for forceps, vacuums, and importantly, also similar to cesarean deliveries performed during labor. Um, so you're not necessarily avoiding this risk by proceeding to cesarean delivery. Compared to those babies delivered by cesarean, babies delivered by forceps had higher rates of fracture, facial nerve palsy, and brachial plexus injuries, but lower rates of neurologic complications overall, such as seizures, intraventricular hemorrhage, or subdural hemorrhage. Those delivered by vacuum had higher rates of cephalohematoma, fracture, and brachial plexus injuries, but not any higher risk of central neurologic complications. So again, not necessarily avoiding the risk of neurologic injury by doing a C-section instead. Few data assess long-term consequences of operative vaginal birth on the infant, but of the few studies that we do have, there doesn't appear to be any significant differences in cognitive development from those born from forceps or vacuum compared to spontaneous vaginal birth. Um, so again, I'd say that from a risks perspective, that's a pretty favorable profile overall to operative vaginal birth. Faye, though again, we talked very briefly about not doing it or not offering it. When should we not perform operative vaginal birth? So we'll talk about the strict contraindications of when to not perform an operative vaginal birth. Um, though, of course, you know, we should take into consideration other things that may make it a relative contraindication. For example, fetal size, maternal pelvis, things like that. So the reason you definitely should not perform an operative vaginal birth would be one, if the fetal head is not engaged or the fetal head position is unknown. Um, and that's just because you really don't know where you're reaching and which way the baby is facing and where you should be placing your blades or your vacuum. Also, you shouldn't perform an operative vaginal birth if the fetus is, is suspected to have osteogenesis imperfecta or other bone demineralization conditions. And that's because that can lead to significant damage to the fetal skull. And finally, if the fetus is thought to have a bleeding disorder, and that would be things like thrombophilia or von Willebrand's disease, because then you're also increasing that baby's risk of having uh, those bleeds that Nick had talked about. So your cephalohematoma, subgaleal, or your intracranial hemorrhage. And then I think last of all, the question is always, well, when should you abandon an operative vaginal birth? Traditionally, the way that we're taught at our institution is 
three pop-offs for the vacuum extractor. Um, and that's because if it's three pop-offs, that's telling you that for some reason, this vacuum is not on correctly or potentially this baby is not coming through this pelvis. But actually what you should do is read whatever vacuum extractor brand you have, read the packaging, because it doesn't say necessarily three pop-offs for every type of vacuum extractor. For some it may be two, for some it may be more. So I would say definitely read the packaging of the brand of vacuum extractor that you have. And of course, um, you should abandon operative vaginal birth potentially if you have deterioration of the fetal heart tracing without progress or just no progress in general, um, because that would mean that maybe there's this baby is not going to be able to come out this way in a expeditious manner. And finally, based on maternal request, I always offer the moms that uh, we're about to perform an operative vaginal birth on in when we talk about risks and benefits that they can just have a C-section. I guess, you know, if you had to pick forceps or vacuum, Nick, I mean, I think we both said we like forceps better. Talk to me a little bit about the pros and cons of each. Why do you like forceps? Why don't you like vacuums? Yeah. So, I mean, this is obviously going to be provider preference overall. So we don't want to poo-poo on vacuums because they do have their place and their importance. And I think that sometimes when you need to reach for something, the vacuum extractor is the more appropriate tool. But to talk straight pros and cons, let's think about forceps first. So forceps, in terms of their pros, are more likely to achieve vaginal birth. And that's to say that when applied, there's a lower likelihood of failure. They only have about a 9% failure rate. Um, they're also less likely to cause cephalohematoma. The rate of cephalohematoma in forcep deliveries is only about 5.2%. However, kind of two big cons against the forceps are an increased risk of higher order vaginal lacerations and anal sphincter injury. The risk of third or fourth degree laceration with forcep delivery is about 17 to 20%, so not insignificant. And then part of that too is that forceps are not exactly user-friendly. You know, you really have to have experience with placement of them. You got to as probably some of our older docs would say, you got to know what you're doing when you're placing on blades. Correct forceps cannot always be obtained emergently too. So if you've ever been in one of those deliveries where, you know, you're, if forceps aren't already on your delivery tray and you're saying, hey, I need Tucker McLean's in the room stat and they run back and then they bring a pair of Keelan's to the room, then you're like, uh oh, what am I doing now? Because, I mean, obviously not the tool that you'd prefer. And vacuums in that case may be more accessible. Faye, I'll have you argue the vacuum pros and cons. Sure. So in terms of vacuum pros, we touched on this already, which is that they are less likely than forceps to cause third or fourth degree lacerations. So risk of third or fourth degree laceration with vacuum is about 10 to 11 percent. And that's not something to sneeze at. If you were giving me a one in five chance of having um, an anal sphincter injury versus a one in 10 chance, I would definitely take the one in 10 chance. <laughs> they are also easier to use, as Nick, you said before, um, with forceps. They're not necessarily user-friendly. You really do have to have a lot of um, experience doing that. And we're not saying that, you know, you don't need experience with vacuums, but certainly, um, you know, being able to place a vacuum is just a little bit more intuitive than being able to place forceps. And finally, for us, at least at our institution, vacuums are very easily available emergently. You can call out of the room and say, I need some vacuums. And you know that the nurse is going to come in and bring you a vacuum. Um, we only have one type at our hospital. In terms of cons, 
they are more likely to increase the risk of neonatal cephalohematoma. So that's 9.4% compared to 5.2% in forceps. And um, they are less likely than forceps to achieve a vaginal birth. So the failure rate is about 14%, meaning need to convert to C-section. All right, Faye, I think that about does it for operative vaginal birth. Let's summarize. Sure. So we first started off by talking about what exactly is an operative vaginal birth. And that's basically when a trained provider uses a device like the vacuum or the forceps during the second stage of labor to achieve or expedite a vaginal birth. And then finally, we talked about the indications of when we should uh, perform an operative vaginal birth. So those, again, are things like prolonged second stage of labor, suspicion of immediate or potential fetal compromise, and also shortening of the second stage of labor for maternal benefit. We then talked about the prerequisites for operative vaginal birth. Worth committing to memory. Number one, the cervix is fully dilated and the membranes are ruptured. Number two, there should be engagement of the fetal head. Number three, the position of the fetal head should be known, either by exam or by ultrasound. Number four, the estimated fetal weight should be assessed and adequacy of the pelvis for vaginal birth should also be assessed in terms of providing a sense of your risk for shoulder dystocia. Number five, you should ensure adequate anesthesia. Number six, the maternal bladder should be emptied. Number seven, the patient has agreed to a trial of operative vaginal birth after being informed of risks and benefits of the procedure. And finally, number eight, the provider needs to have a willingness to abandon the trial of operative vaginal birth with a backup in place, in this case cesarean, in case of failure to deliver. We don't recommend prophylactic episiotomy, but if you need to for obstetric indications, it's reasonable to give prophylactic antibiotics as well as to give antibiotics in the event of a third or fourth degree laceration. We then talked about the different criteria for the different types of forceps deliveries. So we'll categorize this as mid, low, and outlet. Mid forceps is when the station of the head is above plus two, but the head is engaged. Low forceps is when the leading point of the fetal skull is at plus two or more, but not on the pelvic floor. Outlet forceps is when the fetal scalp is visible at the introitus without separating the labia, or when the fetal skull has reached the pelvic floor, or when the fetal head is at or on the perineum. Sagittal suture is also in the AP diameter, or you're at ROA, ROP, LOA, or LOP without more than 45 degrees of rotation. In terms of risks and benefits of operative vaginal birth and how you counsel a patient regarding operative vaginal birth, the primary risk is through those above indications, you're avoiding a cesarean section. However, there are risks. Maternally, there's a higher risk of obstetric anal sphincter injury that is about 10 to 20 percent. However, studies in terms of long-term maternal outcomes on third and fourth degree lacerations don't show any significant difference in fecal or flatal incontinence at one year postpartum. For fetal and newborn complications, the risks are very low in general, though the major risks that we consider are that for intracranial hemorrhage and neurologic complications. For vacuums, these complications generally occur as a consequence of traction on the fetal scalp and can lead to more minor consequences such as laceration, but also lead to cephalohematoma or subgaleal or intracranial hemorrhage. Forceps, you can have facial lacerations or facial nerve palsy or corneal abrasions, external ocular trauma, skull fractures, and intracranial hemorrhage are also risks. However, compared to delivery by cesarean, the risk of intracranial hemorrhage or neurologic complication is not necessarily mitigated. 
those delivered by forceps have higher rates of fracture, facial nerve palsy, and brachial plexus injury, but lower rates of neurologic complications. Those delivered by vacuum have higher rates of cephalohematoma, fracture, and brachial plexus injury, but not any higher risk of central neurologic complications. Few data assess long-term consequences of operative vaginal birth compared to spontaneous vaginal delivery, but of those that exist, there's no significant difference in cognitive development. In terms of when you should not perform an operative vaginal birth, hard contraindications include when the fetal head is not engaged or the head position is not known, if the fetus is suspected to have some type of bone demineralization condition like osteogenesis imperfecta, or if the fetus is thought to have some type of bleeding disorder like thrombophilia or von Willebrand's. And then in terms of when you should consider abandoning an operative vaginal birth, traditionally we are taught that this is three pop-ops for the vacuum extractor, but this can actually depend on the brand of vacuum extractor that you use. And also if you have deterioration of the fetal heart tracing without progress or just without progress in general. And finally, you should proceed with abandoning an operative vaginal birth based on maternal request. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of our episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you like the episode today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. And if you want to give us some support, go ahead and go on to our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee, and we'll give you a shout out on the show or some swag. You can find show notes for this episode and all of our episodes on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Have a suggestion for us or some corrections for our previous shows? Go ahead and email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 